Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop. On vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take this anymore. For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. I never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Because I ordered some pizza. We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. May I help you? Yeah. I'm looking for Victor Meadlin. I have nothing to say to you. How you doing? You guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks because my drink club sold out. Throw up. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. This thing's nice in my apartment. I just bet you are the pride of your department in Detroit. It seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. I don't know what y'all think I am, Kimmy, some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker! Crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop. (laughs) Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to do arguably Eddie Murphy's finest film, and that's Beverly Hills Cop from 1984. Now, the studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was December 5th, 1984. The running time was 105 minutes. It's, of course, rated R. The budget was $15 million. The box office was $316 million. It was the top-grossing film of 1984. Now, Rotten Tomatoes gives it 82% fresh from 45 reviews. The critics' consensus is the buddy cop movie continues its evolution unabated with this Eddie Murphy vehicle that's fast, furious, and funny. Now, one of my favorite reviewers, Roger Ebert at the time, gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Eddie Murphy looks like the latest victim of the star magic syndrome, in which it is assumed that a movie will be a hit simply because it stars an enormously talented person. Thus, it is not necessary to give much thought to what he does or says, or to the story he finds himself occupying. 
Beverly Hills Cop is a movie with an enormous appealing idea. A tough black detective from Detroit goes to Beverly Hills to avenge the murder of a friend. But the filmmakers apparently expected Murphy to carry this idea entirely by himself. Murphy plays a streetwise rebel who is always getting into trouble with his commanding officer because he does things his own way. The movie opens with an example of that. Murphy is single-handedly running a sting operation when the cops arrive unexpectedly, setting off a wild car truck chase through the city streets. Even while we're watching the thrilling chase, however, stirrings of unease are beginning to be felt. Any movie that begins with a chase is not going to be heavy on originality or inspiration. Then Murphy's old friend comes to town, fresh from a prison term and six months of soaking up the rays in California. The friend has some negotiable bonds with him, and then some friends of the guy who owns the bonds turn up and murder Murphy's friend. That makes Eddie mad, and he drives his ancient beater out to Beverly Hills, where it sort of stands out among the Porsches and Mercedes. He also meets a childhood friend, Lisa Albacher, who now works for an art dealer. At this point, the movie can go in one of two directions. It can become a perceptive and pointed satire about American attitudes, showing how the ultra-chic of Beverly Hills react to this black cop from Detroit. Or it can go for a broad, cheap lapse and plug into a standard plot borrowed from countless TV crime shows. Beverly Hills Cop doesn't pause a moment before taking the low low road. Uh, We figure that, that out right away when Murphy tries to register in a hotel and is told there isn't any room. He loudly pulls rank and race, claiming to be a correspondent from Rolling Stone and accusing the desk clerk of racism. This is A, not funny, and B, not convincing, because Beverly Hills desk clerks were not born yesterday. If the people who made the film had been willing to listen to the ways that real people talk, they could have made the scene into a jewel instead of an embarrassment. Meanwhile, the plot thickens. It turns out that the killers of Eddie's friends were employees of the evil Victor Maitland, played by Stephen Burkoff. A Beverly Hills criminal whose art gallery, where Albacher works, is a front for cocaine smuggling. When Murphy tries to move against Maitland, he comes up against the Beverly Hills cops, including an Abbott and Costello team that supplies unnecessary pratfalls, successfully undermine the credibility of any police scene that threatens to work. But wait a minute, what is this movie about anyway? Is it a comedy or an action picture? Audiences may expect a comedy, but the shootout... See, the closing shootout seems uh, inspired by the machine gun massacre at the end of a Brian De Palma's uh, movie, Scarface. And the whole business with the cocaine is so very, very tired that when we see the boss and his henchmen in the warehouse, we feel like we've switched to another movie, maybe a dozen other movies. Murphy is one of the smartest and quickest young comics in the movies. But he is not an action hero, despite his success in 48 Hours. And by plugging him into an action movie, the producers of Beverly Hills Cop reveal a lack of confidence in their original story inspiration. It's like they had a story confidence that boiled down to, hey gang, here's a great idea, let's turn it into a standard idea and fill it with cliches and take out the satire and put in a lot of machine guns. And that's the end of the review. Well, I've always respected Ebert's reviews, and no matter what, they're always very well thought out. However, with this film, I have to disagree. Only Eddie Murphy could have done a role like this. He carries the film by itself, and not many actors could have done it so effortlessly like he does. And it made him a star, and he deserved it. And arguably, he never topped himself in any film after this film. His improv talents 
were amazing, and stand-up-wise, nobody was bigger than Eddie Murphy in the 1980s. This movie was a game-changer. Most traditional cop action movies were like Dirty Harry or Death Wish, and after Beverly Hills Cop, the wisecracking cop genre just began. I mean, to be fair to Ebert's review, we have the luxury of hindsight now and knowledge that the film could have been completely different if the original lead actor was kept. Now, more on this later. I am sure uh, I first saw Beverly Hills Cop as the edited, watered-down version on television, and only later would I seal the real version on VHS at a friend's house. But if you were a, a young man or a young boy in the 1980s, you loved Eddie Murphy. And, and you, even if you're anyone, you like, I adored his work on Saturday Night Live, and whether it be his skits about Buckwheat, you know, from our gang, or him impersonating Stevie Wonder, he was just brilliant, and Beverly Hills Cop was his Saturday Night Live personas on steroids. So prior to getting uh, the star making role of Axel Foley, Murphy was in three films prior. He was, of course, in 48 Hours with Nick Nolte, the terrific Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis, and both of those films were huge hits. Now there was a third film, and I don't think anybody remembers uh, Best Defense with Dudley Moore. Now this, if you don't know, and I've never seen it either, but it's about a military weapons engineer who struggles to do his job responsibly, uh, while a hapless tank commander has to live with the consequences in combat years later. Murphy plays the tank commander. Good luck trying to find this film. So obviously Murphy was the huge star, but there were other main cast members, like Judge Reinhold, who played Detective Billy Rosewood. At this point in his brief career, Reinhold was best known for playing Brad Hamilton in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. His other notable but smaller roles was Stripes, with Bill Murray, where he played Elmo. John Ashton plays Sergeant Taggart, and Ashton had been working uh, as an actor since the early 70s, mostly on TV shows as a character actor. But his role as Taggart in Beverly Hills Cop was definitely his breakout role, and he would go on to appear in many great 80s movies, many of which which I will cover in the future. Now, Lisa Albacher plays Jenny Summers, and Albacher was best known as, the, as a child actor working on TV shows like My Three Sons and Gunsmoke. Movie-wise, her best-known roles before Beverly Hills Cop was An Officer and a Gentleman, of course, with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger, uh, Ten to Midnight with Charles Bronson, and she didn't really do much after Beverly Hills Cop, at least nothing super notable. Ronnie Cox plays Lieutenant Bogomil, and, and Cox was the most accomplished actor prior to this film, most notably playing Drew in Deliverance. He, of course, was the other part of the famous dueling banjo scene. He was also in Harper Valley PTA, The Onion Fields, and taps. Stephen Burkoff plays Victor Maitland. Burkoff was pretty much hired because the director liked to hi liked him as the James Bond villain Orloff in Octopussy from 1983. There are other great smaller characters, but we will get to them later. Now, the director was Martin Brest, and, and Brest was basically an unknown as he had only directed one major film before Beverly Hills Cop, and this was an action movie called Going in Style, from 1979 with George Burns and Art Carney and Lee Strasberg. He was fired from directing uh, during the production of War Games with Matthew Broderick, and Beverly Hills Cop was his huge break. The main screenwriter was Daniel Petrie. The original story, though, was written by Daniel Bach, and this was Petrie's first screenplay. There are all sorts of really fun facts about this film, and so we'll just start from the beginning of how this, this movie got created. So Michael Eisner, who was the president and CEO of Paramount at the time, claims the impetus of this story began when his wife thought she heard burglars in the house, and they called the Beverly Hills police, and you observed them mulling around the house, and that's where the idea came from. So Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson were a producing team, and, and Simpson was pulled over in his Camaro, 
And he kind of thought about how would the Beverly Hills police uh, react if he was an outsider with a beat-up car that pulled into the city. Sound familiar? You know, how would they treat him? And this was back in 1977. The film was supposed to be a straight-action film, no comedy. The original script was called Beverly Drive, and both Danilo Bach and Daniel Petrie thought Al Pacino, James Caan, Quinn Eastwood, or Mickey Rourke would be the ideal candidates to play Axel Foley. Rourke actually received a holding offer of $400,000 to not take another movie in, in order to lock him up for Beverly Hills Cop. That actually uh, expired, and he went on to shoot another film. So Petrie wanted more of a comedy angle. And, and thinking about this, Sylvester Stallone was offered the role as Axel, and surprisingly, he accepted, uh, even though there was a comedy angle to it. But then they actually really, really wanted Eddie Murphy, and were shocked that Stallone actually accepted because he was one of the top action stars at the time. Stallone started to rework the script to sound more like him. Stallone wanted Petrie to change the name of Axel Foley to Axel Cobretti, so the movie could be called Motor City Cobra. Now, eventually, this did happen for Stallone in the movie Cobra, which we will discuss later, in, in future weeks, I mean. Uh, Stallone added tons of action scenes and essentially removed all the instances of comedy. However, Stallone's changes would have cost $6 million more to film the, to film the movie, and so it would have gone from $14 million to $20 million. In one of the drafts written for Sylvester Stallone, Billy Rosewood was called Siddons, and was killed halfway through the script during one of the action scenes deemed too expensive for Paramount to produce. So after Martin Brest cast Judge Reinhold and John Ashton, he decided to keep Rosewood alive. The original finale for the Sylvester Stallone draft of the script took place at night and ended with a car chase between Victor Malin in a Lamborghini and Axel in a turbo-boosting Pontiac GTO. Victor is ultimately killed when his car smashes into an oncoming train. Stallone, by all accounts, was a total gentleman when it came down to that the producers didn't want to go in the direction that he wanted, and he very easily could have held up production by legal you know, proceedings and whatnot, but he didn't. Eventually, his ideas again went to the film Cobra, and interestingly enough, almost all of the supporting cast that ended up in the film was hired when Stallone was still on board. Eddie Murphy was hired two weeks before filming started, which is crazy. Sylvester Stallone eventually said he left the project because he didn't think audiences would accept him as a naive fish-out-of-water cop who has a new lifestyle at Beverly Hills. He also didn't like the inclusion of comedy and felt like he wasn't suited for it, which is kind of interesting because he did Rhinestone <laughs> that year, but maybe the Rhinestone experience uh, jaded him. Martin Brest uh, actually couldn't decide if he wanted to direct... Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, so he literally flipped a coin. Obviously, the take the job side one, he ended up framing the coin to commemorate the event. Director Amy Heckerling suggested Judge Reinhold to Brest as she had worked with Reinhold on Fast Times at Richmond High. The entire cast were big fans of Ronnie Cox from Deliverance, and Reinhold tells the story that Cox was double-jointed and could take his arm out of socket. <laughs> so Cox famously did this in Deliverance, and, and Reinhold kept pushing him to do it on, on set when they weren't shooting. Ronnie Cox would be uh, given uh, rewrites of the script sometimes 30 minutes before his takes and would always nail it, according to Brest. Ronnie Cox was also one of the final actors to join the film. Beverly Hills Cop ended up being uh, one of the highest uh, audience test ratings for any Paramount uh, movie at that time. However, when a screening was given to only Hollywood insiders, they didn't laugh at any of the jokes and totally didn't get it. And obviously, they were wrong because the film was a smash hit, as we, as we said earlier. 
All right, so let's just get into the film. So the intro, of course, you get the amazing Gwen Fry song, The Heat Is On, which we played on our favorite 80s movie songs, and this is supposed to be in the streets of Detroit. Great, upbeat 80s track. It, it doesn't really match the scene, though, of a downtrodden Detroit city, but even still, it still sets a great tone for the film. I love my saxophone. Harold Faltemeyer, who will definitely be coming up soon, co-wrote this song with Ken Forsey, and, and Fry supposedly recorded his vocal parts in a day and then finished the guitar parts the next day. And he was paid $15,000 for the track, and the song was just a huge hit, one of his biggest hits. So we cut, and we see Eddie Murphy. Uh, he always seems like he's doing a stand-up, and, and as Roger Ebert suggested, it's it's during that cigarette sm smuggling scene and their Lucky Strike cigarettes, and, and this is him in his prime. You know, he's, uh, you know, $5,000, and he's just doing his back and forth with them. Tell me something, shit. I'm a businessman. I'm gonna sit down, do what you want to do. You're right. It ain't easy to get rid of this shit. I know, but see, I'm a businessman. You know, this is my thing. I'm doing business here. I won't the truck. Let's get the fuck out of here. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, cousin. My man. No dash yet. Um, this look like two grand to me. This look like five thousand dollars. Give me, let me see. The deal is for five thousand. That's about two thousand that you count yourself. You know what? This pisses me off. I told my people it's supposed to be five grand here, and look at this shit. They stiffed us. No, they stiff you, because I want my money, man. Son of a bitch, you know, you can't count anybody today. But look, I'll tell you what, let's not fucking hassle about it now. Take the two fucking grand, and on the next score, 
I promise I'll make it up to you. Hey, look, man, don't jerk me off, all right, man? Jerk somebody else off. This is bullshit. I need, I need $5,000, not $2,000 thing, man. Don't do this to me. Well, look, don't be unreasonable. You're not dealing with Johnny Bananas. Come on, yeah. No, I, 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 I know I deal with Johnny Bananas, but can I have my money? Can you, no, look, can I say it slow for you? Look, I need $5,000. Read my lips. $5,000 is what I need. This is bullshit here. I can't look, do nothing with that. You know, you want to be a fucking asshole, you can take the whole load and smoke them yourself in the park. I, I got, don't smoke like a strike. I smoke king size. Can't. I, can't, I can't make a price to my own. Fuck this. Nice doing business with you, kid. Hey, buddy, what you doing here? Oh, officer, you know what just happened a few minutes ago? You ain't gonna believe this shit. Check this out. The truck, it just stopped, man. It just stopped. You got some jumper cables, you give me a jump. Hey, uh, don't I know you from someplace? Nah, man, that ain't me. I'm from Buffalo. Both of you guys break out some ID. Let's get the fuck out of here! You get the Pointer Sisters playing the Neutron Dance uh, during the Cigarette Escape. It's just a great song and a perfect chase scene uh, for, for that type of music. And surprisingly, this song wasn't a hit until after it appeared in the film. But I remember my the Pointer Sisters uh, because of my parents. They had uh, the cassette, and again, it was just staple in our house. But I still never understood the scene. Uh, why are they smuggling cigarettes, of all things? And... Uh, Anyway, they, when you watch the scene, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, there's slow motion car chases, which is very 80s. It's very Chips-esque. You know, if you watch the Highway Patrol uh, motorcycle cops from the show from the 70s, it's like that. But actually, this scene was filmed last, which is pretty common for... Um, movie shootings they don't always they never film the, the scenes in sequence it's always disjointed um, the actual area that they were filming in was a very rough area so the chase scenes were filmed in Detroit filmed in unmarked van <laughs> that were almost like surveillance uh, the off-duty police officer was with them because it was a rough area but the initial talking scenes in Los Angeles was on the first day of shooting. So when you see them in the truck talking, that's in L.A., but the actual uh, car chase scenes are in Detroit. The The back and forth over money was actually inspired by Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel in the movie Mean Streets. So immediately you see a cool cameo, and at the time it was a stand-up, he was only known as a stand-up, and that was Paul Reiser who plays Detective Jeffrey. Um, and so the character was named as a subtle dig to Jeffrey Katzenberg at Paramount, who was the production uh, president of production under Michael Eisner. And uh, Reiser was a friend of the casting director and basically badgered her to see his stand-up act, and then he got put in the film. I love Axel Foley's boss. It's Inspector Todd, and that's played by Gil Hill. Non-stop swearing, which then was a big deal back in the 80s. Uh, nowadays, he'd sound normal, but the excess swearing was unique back then. And he, the cool thing about Hill is he was a real detective. He was the head of homicide, um, the homicide department in Detroit. And he wasn't great when he first rehearsed, they said, but turned out to be terrific. And he had never acted at the time. So he almost looked like Eddie's father, you know, and he ran and ended up running for mayor of Detroit and was on the city council. And ironically, they asked him, was his character much like him in real life? And he said, no, it was he never yelled at any officer in his own job, but he was yelled at, he said. 
Just lighten up. I'm not listening to you, okay? I'm not listening. You are making it a lot worse for yourself. Oh, thank you. Look at this. This is great now. Thank you, guys. Hey, yes. You got a cigarette? Did you write that one? That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's yeah, not a secret. Yeah. Everybody knows about you and the truck. Well, Jeffy, will you listen to me? So listen, all of you, I am not listening to you. Can't avoid. La 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 la. I am not That's listening to Jeffrey, but he's still talking. I am not listening to you. I really hate when you do that. Stop then, all right? Childish. Is that fucking fool in here? All right, there's time. It's showtime, okay? Hey, boss, I know what you're gonna say, but you I'm... You mind telling me where the fuck you come off going undercover without authorization from me? What the fuck is this all about? You wanna play some fucking bullshit cowboy cop? Go do it in somebody else's precinct. Don't you wanna hear my side of the story? What's your fucking side of the story? Let's hear your side of the story. Hey, Axel. I'm not taking any more of this shit from you. Know how much this little stunt of yours gonna cost this city? I don't think cost is the issue here, sir. I think the issue should be my blatant disregard for proper procedure. You damn right, wise ass! The mayor called the chief, the chief called the deputy chief, the deputy chief just chewed my ass out. You see, I don't have any bit of it left, don't you? When the fuck did you get a truckload of cigarettes from anyway? From the Dearborn hijack. From the Dearborn hijack? And that fucking bus went down last week. That truck is supposed to be in the damn pound. I'm trying to tell you. Jeffrey, this is none of your fucking business. This is not my locker. Listen, Axel. No more of these setups, you understand? You're a good cop. And you got great potential, but you don't know every fucking thing. And I'm tired of taking the heat for your ass. One more time, you're out on the street. Do you understand me? Hey, boss, let me tell you. Do you understand me? Yeah, I understand. Boss. The chief ain't true at all out. You still got a little ass there. Don't fuck with me, Axel. Not now. Go on. Go home. So this is a fun part. I wanted to count how many times did Axel F, which is the Harold Faltermeyer classic score this is the the theme song of beverly hills cop how many times is it actually played during out the during the film and from what i counted it was nine times nine times yes going to his detroit apartment uh he's delivering flowers to victor maitland's office he's arrested uh the food delivered to taggart and rosewood in the car uh delivery to the new cops falling axle following maitland's car Billy taking Axel to investigate the shipment. That plays twice. Uh, Axel, Taggart, and Rosewood infiltrate Milton's, uh, Maitland's estate. So that's the, those are the nine times Axel F plays. So Technopop was kind of popular at the time, and, and what a brilliant score by Harold Faltermeyer. They really wanted a simple theme for Axel. And the model was the Pink Panther, or the third man. It's very mischievous, and just like Axel. And much of the score was improvised daily after shoots. And it's really, really well done, and it's one of the most iconic themes of the 1980s. All right, another la- another um, count that I did is Eddie's Eddie Murphy's laugh. And if you've ever heard Eddie Murphy, the <laughs> yes, I can't do it justice. But the unofficial count of how many times do you get that that Eddie Murphy laugh? 18. There you go. So watch the movie and see if I'm correct. Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> Driving on the expressway. Hold still, Mike. I gotta open the door, okay? Balance yourself. Okay? Here we go.
Right, so you get Patti LaBelle playing New Attitude, and and the record company wanted that song in the film, and then um, you hear Do You Really Want My Love by Junior, and and that's when Axel and Mikey, Mikey is, uh, they're playing pool. Jonathan Brooks plays Zach, and he's a great character actor. He's always playing a bad guy, and he's the goon for the main villain, Victor Maitland. And he also appeared uh, with Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours, but he's best known as Mike... And I can't say his last name, but it's Ermatron or or whatever. He's in Breaking Bad, and he's also Better Call Saul. Another Patti LaBelle song appears in the the soundtrack and on the film, and it's stirred up, and that's playing when Axel arrives in Beverly Hills, uh, driving his beat-up blue Chevy Nova down Rodeo Drive. And it's almost like the Beverly Hillbillies, and it's playing. It's also playing during the uh, the song during the closing credits. And I guess it must have been a singles push because I think New Attitude is a better song. Uh, but the director like stirred up better, and the record company wanted to push New Attitude, and it just didn't happen. And I tend to agree with the record company for once. So Eddie try as uh, Roger Ebert mentioned. Eddie Murphy tries to stay at the Beverly Palm Hotel, and it's $235 a night, and this is back in 1984, so yeah. <laughs> Eddie says he's a Rolling Stone magazine reporter to scam his way into getting a room booked in the hotel, and then the next scene he's walking, because he, he wants to uh, interview Michael Jackson, and then the next scene he's he's walking down the street, and he sees two guys in leather outfits, similar to what Michael Jackson used to wear during the Thriller era. What's also interesting is they were wearing, I think, a red jacket and then a black kind of leather coat. And those would be the two outfits that Eddie Murphy would wear in his main stand-up act. So in Deliver- uh, um, Delirious, he was wearing a-, a total red jumpsuit. And then in Raw, he's wearing all black. So as Roger Ebert said, for the most part, this movie avoids racial issues because really it's more of a class thing, which is more universal than divisive. And, and I think it- this movie was made nowadays, the race issue would be played up a lot, which would be cliche and, and frankly less effective. And I think that's why Beverly Hills Cop works so well. Eddie's Murphy, Eddie Murphy's character is easy to like because he's a good cop and hilarious, not because he's black. Hence why today's movies just don't have the same lasting power. And, and I think this is also why 48 Hours doesn't hold up as well, interestingly enough. And uh, we'll, we'll eventually cover that movie later. All right, so we get to one of the funniest characters, and it's just the, he's just a character actor, but it's Bronson Pinchot playing Serge, and he's a scene stealer, one of the best side characters of the 80s. I'm fine. My name is Serge, and how can I help you? Um, yeah, I'm looking for Miss Jenny Summers. It's very busy today. Maybe you give me your name? My name is Axel Foley. And uh, what is pertaining? I didn't understand what you said. Pertaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? I'm an old acquaintance of hers. Donay? One moment. Don't run and tell me, Summers, that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell. Axel. Foley is here to see her. These are all the quints. Don't you discover this stuff. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of sorry. a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy, it's animal. No, it's not sexy at all. May I offer you something to drink? A wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso? No, I'm fine, thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. You should try it. No, I'm, I'm fine. I see you look at this piece. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out of here! No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important piece. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of here! I'm serious. I said it myself. <laughs> Axel Foley, what on earth are you doing here? How you doing? I'm fine. Hold a second. I'll be right down. Great. 
Excuse me, Serge. Tremendous timing. I, I have no idea what kind of accent he's doing. And this was by design. Pinchot joked before he accepted the role about guys that used to work at the malls at the time where you just couldn't figure out where they were from due to the weird accents. And, and hence, Serge became uh, part of the movie. And Eddie Murphy was tough to crack. He was tough to make laugh. But Pinchot would, would make him crack up. And it, it, he works at this ridiculous art house uh, there's heads on spinning plates. It's like, what the hell's going on here? But that's that's the 80s. That's the Rodeo Drive, you know, the weirdness. All right, so we see Victor Maitland. He's the typical, like, Euro villain from the 1980s. Seems like every action film had one. Uh, however, the looks and the stares of Maitland were perfect, and it seems kind of excessive that he threw Axel through a window, but it's a great effect. I mean, everything had to be bigger and larger than life in, in this film. So Taggart and Rosewood are just terrific together. You know, you get the tough guy versus basically Brad from Fast Times at Richmond High, and they're like an old married couple. It's like Lauren Hardy or Abbott and Costello, the Honeymooners, you know. There's some great lines. Like, they're just sitting, you know, going back and forth. It's mostly imp- improv and Rosewood talking about, like, God, there's five pounds of red meat in your in your bowels, <laughs> and you're drinking a lot of coffee and, and sitting in, you know, those car talks, and uh, you know, Billy talking about the ending of Butch Cassidy during the sh- shootout scene. And most of these were improvised. And it's even them having a tough time climbing the walls was improvised. They just worked really, really well together. All right, Jenny Summers was just kind of a useless character, but she's very attractive. And I think at the time, they just you needed to, to have someone like, like that in the film. And she kind of looked like Terry from Three's Company, which was Priscilla Barnes. And I think what initially would happen was... Um, Summers was supposed to be a love interest for when Stallone was still in the picture, and then her character kind of changed when Stallone was out, and so her character is rewritten to be an old childhood friend of Axel, but again, she really doesn't offer much, and I think that's mainly due to uh, the Stallone um, issue. Speaking of rewrites, so James Russo, who was Mikey, uh, was added for Eddie Murphy. Originally, the character was supposed to be Stallone's brother. Russo also had a, a Rod- Judge Reinhold uh, connection as he briefly appeared in Fast Times at Richmond High as, a, as the convenience store robber at the end of the film. There's a great cameo from Damon, Damon Wayans, who had hair at the time. <laughs> I mean, he was a buddy of, of Eddie Murphy. And this is uh, Damon Wayans' film debut. And he's the one that gives Eddie the bananas, which end up in the tailpipe for Taggart and Rosewood. I always wondered, would that actually work? And uh, according to an episode of uh, Mythbusters, the foreign object in a tailpipe would shoot out of the exhaust. So it wouldn't actually make the car uh, stall. In any case, Judge, Judge Reinhold does a great job impersonating a stalling car because the original idea was to be a potato in the tailpipe, but it had to fit logistically near the hotel lobby and pit, the potatoes just weren't around. However, a fruit buffet worked, and that's why you get Damon Wayans giving the bananas. All right, my favorite scene as a kid is the strip club. <laughs> and when he's like, when Eddie was all, Philip! And you got the, uh, you know, Vanities playing the Nasty Girl song and the stripper. Stripper at the time was named Mouse in the film. And uh, she was the one that actually suggested the song. Now, the record company wanted a Rick James song. And so this is the 80s. So gratuitous nudie was the norm. Eddie was shaking his chair. It's just so funny. And then he gives these looks. Uh, they give you looks to each other that are just terrific. And they don't even say anything. And then the shot of Eddie giving the giant okay sign. That just became like the iconic iconic shot from the movie. But the way Eddie plays up the whole drunk Philip before capturing the guy that's going to uh, rob the strip club. It, it's, it's great. I never understood why they would bring a <laughs> giant shotgun to rob a strip club but i guess there's a lot of cash there so there you go it's better than knocking over a gas station get it up get it up i can't wait anymore 
don't come here no more about that. It's Phil. It is Get Philip. Out, I told you it's Philip, you liar. Hey, Philip, give me a kiss, baby. Shake it Everybody freeze! Turn around. Turn around. Phil! Get your hands on the table! Phil! What's wrong, man? What's all the hostility, Phil? Get back, man. What you doing with all this gun, man? I want you to get back. You changed, man. I'm telling me. you to get back. If you don't get back, I'm going to blow your fucking brains out. Please, move and I'll kill you. Don't move! Turn over! Way to go, Rosewood. You're some kind of cop, you know that? Sorry for the disturbance, folks. Everything's under control. So there's that great scene where Eddie Murphy is trying to get Taggart and Rosewood off the hook with uh, Bogomil. And so he comes up with a super cop ta- uh, tale. And this is all improving. Eddie had had basically wasn't a big you know alcohol drinker and and really caffeine he wasn't his thing either but he drank a bunch of coffee at the time and so he was super hyper and so they had to do multiple takes because he kept coming up with new stuff and everyone kept cracking up but it's a great scene. Taggart, would you mind explaining to me what you and Rosewood were doing in a strip bar out of our jurisdiction when you were still on duty? Sir, before you chastise these two officers, I think it's something you should know. The only reason that they were at a strip bar because they were tailing me and I went to this place. Now, these two officers were sitting outside wondering what I was doing. I wasn't having a good time. I'm into things like that. Anyway, these guys waited outside, and the only reason that they came in was because they saw two suspicious-looking gentlemen with bulges in their jackets going into the place. Well, it turns out that these guys were going to commit a robbery, sir. These men watched them, waited for them to make their move, and then they foiled the crime. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. You must have a sixth sense. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. And the only thing missing on these guys are capes. Is this what really happened? No, sir. Would someone like to tell me what really happened? <clears throat> well, Foley invited us to this bar. And we accepted. Uh, we ordered club sodas, sir. Right. And while we were there, fully observed the two suspects casing the establishment. And before we knew what was going on, he'd already disarmed one of them. Detective Foley deserves all the credit for the arrest. Detective Foley, we appreciate your assistance. But in the future, if you want to practice law enforcement, I would prefer you did it in Detroit. I understand, sir. I'm sorry. But before I go, I just want you two to know something, all right? The, the super cop story was working, okay? It was working, and you guys just messed it up, okay? I'm trying to figure you guys out, but I haven't yet. But it's cool. It's a fuck up, perfectly good lie, and it's all right. So a typical action trope or a police movie, you always get the dueling uh, detective duos, you know, so there's always uh, internal conflict. So you have Rosewood and Taggart, but then you have the two other guys who are trying to take over the case as well, and that always happens. And uh, one, you know, when you get the banana and the tailpipe, and and then also the food delivered to the to the car guy into uh, the car, the delivery guy from the hotel was from the Karate Kid. It's Freddy. So that was originally Daniel Russo, Ralph Macchio's buddy, in the beginning of the film. You get the uh, DeLorean uh, sighting when Axel is stalking Vic- Victor Maitland's house. So a year later, you would get a very famous DeLorean from Back to the Future. 
there's a great line, and this is this might be missed, uh, but this is typical Eddie Murphy. So he, he's parking his car at the club uh, a club restaurant for the valet because he's following Victor Maitland. And he's like, can you put this in a good spot? All this shit happened last time I parked here talking about his beat-up car. <laughs> so, great line. Can you put this in a good spot? All this shit happened last time I parked here. Thank you. Frankly, the plot was always secondary. It's it's honestly just getting Eddie Murphy to, por- to to perform and chew up scenery, and that's what he did. So maybe that was the beef by Roger Ebert, but to me, it works great, and it, it, nobody else could have done this role at the time. One thing, so one of the trends in this movie was absolute terrible shooting from the villains. <laughs> you know, it was like A-team-esque. Thousands of rounds and no hits, you know, whereas you get a few rounds from the good guys and they're direct hits. And uh, though Murphy, he got shot, I think, in every single Beverly Hills Cop uh, film, the third being the most ridiculous. I do own it, so we will talk about it, but it won't be as fun as this one. The Victor Maitland house scene was supposed to be a night scene, but it was too expensive. And actually, it works better during the day. And the house was actually owned by a real family, and their furniture was all theirs. All right, so again, I'm not giving any spoilers because there were no spoilers. You know what's going to happen in this movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'm you're probably very young. But uh, again, the terrific movie. I still enjoy it. I still watch it probably once or twice a year. Uh, the soundtracks and uh, the soundtrack songs in this movie, uh, the songs were a driving force for the action as opposed to the sound effect, which was cool. Nowadays, sound effects take over the music, but to me, music was much more uh, powerful and it kind of you know set the set the mood for much of this film, which was cool. The soundtrack, as you can imagine, was a huge hit, peaked at number one on Billboard. Uh, almost six months after its initial release and sold over a million copies. You know, thanks to Glenn Fry and, and the Axel F theme, of course, the, of course, um, Patti LaBelle and Vanity. Just It was a really well-done soundtrack. And it actually won a Grammy for Best Score for the soundtrack album. All right, some fun facts. Stephen Elliott, who was the p- police chief, uh, who played the police chief, was so indignant reading his lines with a non-actor, he screamed at the director, and then uh, that that actually sold him, uh, the director, to hire the guy because he was just acting like a typical police commissioner. Oh, shit. Is this the mess? Yes, sir. Is this the gentleman who crashed through Victor Maitland's window? Who disabled a non-mark unit with a banana? Yes, sir. Who lured Taggett... And Rosemont into a gross dereliction of duty at a striptease establishment? Uh, it's Rosewood, sir. Yes, sir. Is this the gentleman who ruined the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning? Yes, sir. I just bet you are the pride of your department in Detroit. Lieutenant, I'd like to see you in your office. Yes, sir. Just a man who wrecked the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning. your voice, for Christ's sake. So Gil Hill, who played Eddie Murphy's uh, boss in Detroit, uh, suggested that Eddie wear his gun in his back pocket, and that's what Eddie does throughout the film. So Martin Scorsese was offered the chance to direct this film, but he turned it down, saying the premise reminded him too much of Coogan's Bluff from 1968, and guess what? We're going to cover that film in a couple weeks. Who knew? 
Now, the earliest version of the script involved a cop in East L.A. who was transferred to Beverly Hills, and this cop's name was Axel Ellie. And then the non-Beverly Hills action happened in Pittsburgh. Very interesting. All right, so we got Keith. We got Metal Mike also going to talk about this film. So stay tuned, and let's hear what they have to think about Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, we're back with Keith. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good. So we're we're going to talk about Beverly Hills Cop. And uh, so, again, this is we're about the same age, I think. I, did you see this in the theater, or was this video, TV, or what was the first time, your first recollection seeing this movie? Uh, it was definitely at home, renting it. Uh, it was, at that time, one of the biggest rental movies at the video store when it first came out. I was I was only 12 when it was out in the theater, so it wasn't something that my parents would take me to see. Okay. And if I remember right, I believe it was probably one of those movies that they pre-watched. That sounds about because right. Eddie, yeah. <laughs> Eddie Murphy was so huge with all of his his comedy that they weren't sure what it was going to be like. Now, did you see Forty Eight Hours, or did you see Beverly Hills Cop first? Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, and then you had you seen him on TV, like on SNL? Uh, my mom and dad did. Usually by that time on Saturday night at twelve, I was probably doing something else. Okay. Okay. But they knew about his comedy albums, and I, I don't remember if uh, was it delirious or whatever it was yeah exactly the big comedy special and the people that were taking offense and they knew about the language at the time so they were like no 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 you can't watch that movie right okay so when you saw it was this like (laughs) mind-blowing or you like this is the greatest thing ever i thought Beverly hills cop was hilarious and to this day i still think it's hilarious yeah it holds up really well i think and uh and again i don't know if you know or not but stallone was supposed to be Axel Foley. Yeah, I can't even picture that. Exactly. And so what they did is whatever Stallone had in his rewrites eventually turned into Cobra. Ah, okay. So that's what Beverly Hills Cop would have been like, which wouldn't have been that type of movie at all. I mean, really, Beverly Hills Cop started the action comedy sort of genre. Yeah, I don't think we would have had more lethal weapons. That's a great call. That's true. Anything like that, you know, Bad Boys or, you know, those type of movies. I don't, it, pretty much everything was like a Dirty Harry or Charles Bronson or something like that before that. Yeah, everything was kind of dark and, you know, the, the tough guy cop, you know. I mean, we knew Axel Foley watching him. We weren't sure if he could hold his own. Right, exactly. So uh, what are your favorite scenes in this movie? Uh, let's see. Some of the classic scenes for me would be definitely just him playing the pranks on the cops. Yeah. Uh, the, the banana in the tailpipe, the silly things that he did to them. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Bronson. Oh, Pinch- <laughs> well, you don't Pinch- know what his accent is. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what his accent is until he, I guess, realizes that he can carry an entire TV series with an accent like that. That's later. right. <laughs> um, oh, just, I mean, it was even like some of the things that they did in that movie, like the whole calling the, the one guy out at the the big gala when he was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking. Yeah. I mean, it, that was kind of like to me. All right. A couple of years later, they did it in the fugitive. That's right. That's a good call. So, I mean, there's so many different things that people, I mean, don't give, give that movie credit for, for influencing. I, I think they, it, it's, it's a classic to me. It really is. And I think it kind of almost gets watered down because of the sequels, which is too bad because if they had just left it at one movie, I, I think this would have been, uh, the be-all, end-all of action comedies. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I, I, I did enjoy number two as well. I did too. I did too. The third one, uh, yeah. They, they, they I don't do. even remember it. So I remember it because the amusement park scene was filmed at a at Great America here in the Bay Area in Santa Clara. And I just remember it was right when I was in, I think, a freshman high school. We wanted to be extras, but we, we couldn't get in. Uh, but that was the only reason I knew about that one. Ah, okay. Yeah, uh, it's starting to come back now. That's right. That's the amusement park one. Yeah, it was at that point. They always get and they they got shot up at the end, and and uh, they're laughing about it. And I was like, okay, guys, <laughs> this is a little bit too far. Yeah, no, but the, the first one, just even the, you know, just it was like the the perfect blend of of Eddie Murphy's comedy with the perfect writing, where he he had great lines in the movie, but he wasn't so over the top where people were going to get offended by it. He was a lovable character. Right. And, and it's one of the, I I don't think, I I think he's in every single scene in the movie and you still look forward to every scene. That's what's crazy. Exactly. And I think this was the movie where you had the, the commander that the police chief just every time he'd call him, he's yelling and screaming at him. Yeah. Which again, later on in the nineties would get, you know, made fun of in last action hero that's true that's a good point and you so you're talking about the, his uh his lieutenant in detroit yeah his his his, his detroit lieutenant yeah. where he, every time he's calling in he's just screaming and yelling at him so that guy as as i found out was he was a real uh detective and oh, so, really? yeah so he wasn't an actor at all um they found him i guess he i don't know if he auditioned or not but He's like, this guy's raw, but he's got it down, and, and he really did. I mean, he's perfect. He's almost like Eddie's father in, in many ways in the film. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when's the last time you think you you saw it? Uh, probably within the last year. I think my wife was watching it, and I, I sat down and started watching it with her. Mm-hmm. And it still holds up well for you? Oh, easily, yeah. yeah. So as we always do, let's get into the soundtrack. What What songs do you remember, and what are your favorites off of it? <laughs> Uh, I remember owning this soundtrack on cassette. Nice. Uh, the reason for buying it, I can tell you exactly, was I waited and waited and waited to get to the last track because all I wanted to hear was Axel F. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, checking it out again. Okay, The Heat is On from Glenn Fry. I kind of liked. Yeah. It, it's okay now. It's not as good as some of them, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh in 84, I didn't really know what I liked in music, so <laughs> I remember I kind of remember playing it, but 84 was kind of like my my blossoming year for getting into hard rock and metal music with Pyromania and Metal Health and 1984 from yeah. Van Halen and moving on from there. So I think that, I, I remember that I had the cassette and I listened to Axel, Axel F and then it just kind of collected dust because a lot of it is... 80s pop i guess pop and you know it just wasn't my thing and still isn't my thing but there's some classic pop songs on here oh yeah neutron dance is great from the pointer sisters and during the cigarette stealing scene yeah yeah and then new attitude is still played to this day yeah patty labelle yeah um the other songs i don't even remember yeah the the nasty girl is interesting because that's the strip club scene which would that was always my favorite scene because of the whole uh philip you know that type of <laughs> that always always cracked me up yeah it, it's it's definitely i don't know if it holds up well like uh, for other soundtracks but just something definitely with heat is on and it's one of the most iconic theme songs ever and i when i was going through the movie i th- i have an exact number but i i don't remember i think it's like 25 times it plays throughout the film so Okay, yeah, and, and I think if I remember back in the day, 
I know MTV was around, but we didn't have it in our area at the time, so we just had our local like video station that was on on whatever UHF channel. Right. And these videos for for the Heat Is On and Neutron Dance and even Axel F were played to death. Yeah. Yeah. They were always in rotation. It was like no matter what, like this 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 soundtrack was huge. Yeah, and this is one where I, I think usually it's reverse. So like Flashdance, I think the song the songs helped the movie. I think this is where the movie helped the songs in many ways. Yeah, and, and and I mean I think yeah you had the pop hits, but to me the one that one everyone remembers is that that little instr- instrumental by is it Harold Balterman? Yeah, who also did the the Top Gun themes too. And there you go. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's rare that you know there's a hit nowadays where it was an instrumental, but around that time in the '80s, you had that, and was it Rocket by Herbie Hancock? Yeah, good call. So there was there it was still allowed back in those days of you know a three minute pop song that could be an instrumental, where now that's never going to happen because there's yeah. no such thing as you know a radio outlet that'll play something like that. That's true, and for then the general public, you you nailed it, and that's part of the reason I like *A Star Is Born* uh, the soundtrack so much is because they specifically wrote music for the film. I mean, I granted it is a musical. But uh, it just shows if they want to put in the effort, it, it'll sell well if you have a decent movie and a good soundtrack. You don't have to just recycle hits. Yeah, I miss those soundtracks. I mean, even in, in the early and mid-2000s, even like the, the, the Marvel movies like Spider-Man and sure. had songs written for the movie or they were they were at least getting songs that weren't on albums from people, kind of like they did back in the 80s and 90s. Now it's just pretty much, you know, they, they recycle old hits. The only soundtrack that i think even that even works for the two guardians of the galaxy right. soundtracks but those those songs have different meanings and because of those movies and they're great songs i mean those are classics that they're playing on there that's true and they're not like obvious obvious hits i mean they're you know them but they're not you know uh like if they play a zeppelin song like they'll, they're not doing a lot of love they're doing you know the lesser known zeppelin songs <laughs> Right, I had to laugh because we went on a, a, a binge of watching the Marvel movies and the, the Thor movie just kept playing Immigrant, immigrant Song. Immigrant Song, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I've had enough of that. But then we watched Guardians 2 and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to hear the song when they're playing playing uh, Looking Glass, Brandy. Yeah. I'm like, now that's what I want to hear in a movie because I haven't heard that in years unless you listen to Godzilla World. Right, so, exactly. Good call. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of a soundtrack... Uh, is lost nowadays i think it's it's just a compilation album at this point it's like a now that's what you call a soundtrack thing yeah that's it's true but i hope i hope the success of, of a star is born helps i mean granted i mean it, it is unique in the sense that you had an actual musician involved in it but i think if, if they wanted to they could they could definitely do it here here and there yeah i believe they could too yeah well as always keith you're amazing and thank you so much for being on Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, we're back with DJ Metal Mike and DJ Kane. Welcome back, guys. Hey, brother. What's going on? Thanks for having us. No hey. problem. So, as always, you got to support metal. You got to support Mike and Kane on thatmetalstation.com. Mike has two shows. One is Tuesday from 4 to 8 p.m. Eastern. And then his other show is Friday. This is a long one from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern. So, you definitely check them out. DJ Kane is on Sundays from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. That's the Crusader of Metal show. And then on Thursdays from 3 to 7 p.m. Eastern, and that is Absolute Power. So I, I love having you guys on. You all, In addition to loving metal, you guys love movies, and uh, just love having you on. Uh, 
love movies, old ones, new ones. Doesn't matter, man. I, I, I've always been a huge. Well, hell, both of us. Hell, I like some silent movies, man. Yeah, we love. We're, we're quite the film buffs, man. So we, we're stoked to be on this show and honored that you asked us. Absolutely, friend. and I'm, I'm glad to keep coming back on. And so we're going to talk about the 1984, dare I say, classic Beverly Hills Cop. So. Mike, what, what, do you remember seeing this in the theater, or when when was the first time you actually saw this movie? Um, I I tried to go see it in the theater, and they wouldn't let me in because it was a rated R film. Right. Um, yeah, you so, were 14, yeah, 14 I was only old. fourteen years old. Well, actually, thirteen when it came out. It was released. Uh, or no, I was fourteen. It came out December first, nineteen eighty four, Los Angeles, and then December fifth. Yeah, so I was fourteen. Uh, tried to go see it with some friends. They wouldn't let us. So I had to wait for it to fucking come out on VHS, but it did, mm -hmm. and I loved it. Obviously, I was a big Eddie Murphy fan. I love stand-up comedy, and uh, yeah, I just love the film, man. It was a great, uh, very funny movie, cool soundtrack. I thought the chemistry that Eddie had with Judge Reinhold and the guy who played Taggart was great. Yeah, John you know, Ashton. Yep. Is the chief. I love the old dude who plays uh, Eddie Murphy's superior. He was hilarious. Yeah. It's just a movie, man. The only problem I have, and it's not with this film, but it's like, you know, of course they did the sequel, and I'm like, okay, so now Axel finds himself in Beverly Hills again, and then years later they do a Beverly Hills Cop 3, and I don't even think that took place in Beverly Hills, if I remember it. I always felt they made a mistake, not in making a sequel, but I think they should have called the, the second movie Axel Foley, and do the further adventures of him. Like, they could have had him, eventually what I think would have been cool with the characters if he'd have become a private eye. And, and had adventures kind of like around the world in different locations. I think that would have been really cool, man. Absolutely. Just, That's a great point. I Almost like a James Bond type thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like having quit the police force, police force, become a fucking private eye, and basically just jet set, all, have adventures in New York or Hawaii or fucking Europe or wherever, man. You yeah. know, um, that's what I would have done with the character. But hey, man. Now, did I'm you, not a multi-million, billion-dollar <laughs> movie street. Now, had you seen 48 Hours before Beverly Hills Cop? Yes, I had. Yes, okay. I had. So you liked and that? I, yeah, I watched that with my dad. Yeah, uh, I believe that was when that came out on VHS. And, uh, you know, I watched it. And, yeah, I loved it, too, man. So, yeah, I was stoked for Beverly Hills Cop when it came out. My older brother got to see it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. And I was like, dude, dick, you could have took me, you know? <laughs> well, you're lucky you saw it on VHS because you, you saw it unedited. I think the first time I saw it was, was on television. And, of course, they oh, edited. Oh, really? Yeah, and they edited everything out. So. Oh, yeah. So, Kane. Well, they did, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Kane, when was the first time you saw it? First time I saw it, oh, man, uh, probably uh, in the late 90s, probably around 90, 97. So, was that uh, the first Eddie Murphy movie you saw? Uh, no, my first Eddie Murphy was Dr. Doolittle. Okay, that makes sense, because you're, you're younger. Yeah. Yeah. And his horrible Haunted Mansion movie. What <laughs> the hell? <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, we go back to 1984, and Eddie Murphy was like God between comedy, Saturday Night Live, and 48 Hours. I mean, in Trading Places, too. So, I mean, he yeah. he really was on, yeah. at the top of Trading his game. Trading Places is one of my favorite uh, Eddie Murphy films. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. And it's an interesting point, because I think at first, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kane, but you weren't really a big Eddie Murphy fan because of Dr. Doolittle and because of... Well, I did like Dr. Doolittle, but it was yeah, but, uh, Pluto Nash and... Yeah, so I had to tell him, dude, you need to go back and watch his older films. Watch his older stand-up specials. Watch Delirious. 
watch Raw, watch Beverly yeah. Hills Cop. And when I did, and then when he did, he was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Also, another reason is the Shrek. I mean, uh. he, he nailed that part. Oh, he was fantastic. It's probably the best thing he'd done in a long time. Yeah. As I said, though, I know Eddie's kind of, and because it's, you know, from what I hear, it's because of his kids. You know, he doesn't really want to do movies where he's cussing and doing some of the more adult themes that he did back in the day. So I get it, you know, but, um, man, when Eddie was on, I mean, another one of his movies I loved was the golden child. Yeah. I loved that. Absolutely. And I thought as a remake, the nutty professor was great. It was. Yeah. It was fun. But see, that's what, that's why I like that. I like, like I said before on your show, dude, I like remakes where they bring something new to the table. I don't want to see exactly what I saw before. And, and they, and they made, he made it, they made it his, they made it theirs. They did it differently than the original. Yeah, but I prefer the original. Well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying that I per, don't prefer the original, but what I'm saying is they made it differently. Yeah. It's still entertaining. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. It, it's kind of like um, there's there's been a lot of, well, John Carpenter's The Thing is a perfect example. Oh, the yeah. Thing from the, other are, or, thing, the Thing from Another World is a classic, but I love Carpenter's version. Oh, yeah. It's totally different, mm-hmm. and I fucking commend that, man. I hate it. Hate it when people do the same exact movie, just with better with, with, with better effects or better or in color or whatever. Like, yeah, what? what's the point? Yeah, yeah, there's no point to it. It's stupid, you know. It's like, yeah, you need to make changes to it. If you're if you're gonna do a remake, make it yours. Same with a cover tune. It's, it's totally more gory. Like the special but, effects are totally different. You know, it's it's a completely but, different you know, film. Another horror film that's an example. I know you love the remake and the original, The Fly. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, 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 totally the, different. The Goldwyn version is a lot different from the original. The original, the poor guy turns from half man, half fly instantly, and they like trade spaces. Yeah, which is horrible enough, especially the little help me guy. Yeah, but <laughs> the other one where he gradually becomes the fly, becomes Brundle Fly. Oh fuck, man, that movie was creepy, dude. Oh, it's it so is sad. unbelievable. So great remake because again. Cronenberg did it differently. That's right. So there's a lot of good remakes. You know, some people always bitch about remakes, and I'm like, look, as long as they do it, do the original justice, but yet do it differently, I don't have a problem with it. No, not at all. Going back to Beverly Hills Cop, the music. The music's a key part to this movie. Well, what are oh, your I'm, some? Yeah, what are some of your favorite tracks from this uh, this soundtrack and movie? Well, for me, I, I love the main theme. Uh, I don't know who did that. Yeah, that's uh, Harold Fultimar. Yeah, I love that, man. Mm-hmm. Um, Axel Left yep. is what it's called. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And I like, uh, well, you know, the opening scene with, you know, New Attitude. I, I like that. Yep. I like, uh, uh, of course, The Heat is On, you know. I mean, Glenn Fry. Uh, Glenn Fry, which, again, that is a song that has a lot of um, good memories for me, being that, you know, and I know you as a, as a baseball fan. That was the year, the 84 Cardinals. Oh, yeah. The 85 Cardinals, actually, they used that theme, the heat is on, for their year. And that was the year we went to the World Series. Against Kansas City. Yep. We got robbed by that horrible call (laughs) where even fucking Stevie Wonder could tell you that he was fucking out. Yes.
get there as quick as you can. I think he tries to go for the ball. His argument is he gets the side of the bag. Looks like he's out. From that angle, let's take a look from this one. Again, Clark with the, the toss. Oh, yes. any doubt about it. Only in one person's point. So Orta gets on. Well, if this was uh, two, if it was two, that no, I know. But if it was this year, they would have returned it with replay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter by that. No, not at all. My dad was so mad. He's like, God damn it. It's an American League umpire. That's fucking bullshit. He did that on purpose. Because it was. It was an American League umpire. Yeah, back then they had, back then they had different leagues. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, come on, man. Come on now. <laughs> anyway, great song. I love Glenn Fry. Obviously, I love the Eagles. So, um, yeah, those are the ones that I remember is, uh, of course, the Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters. Great, great track. It, isn't that the song that they play in the opening when he's on the back of the truck? Exactly, when they're doing the, uh, yeah. when he's stealing the cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, which was hilarious. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I dig it, man. Yeah. Um, Another thing I think that was interesting is I read I mean, somewhere... We got this great tune. We got to play it over. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, it, but I'll tell you why I think it works, because it's just catchy as fuck. Oh, it is. It's really catchy, and it's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It is repetitive, but it's one of those... Most songs are repetitive like that. After a while, I'm like, okay, fucking enough. But for some reason, I never get tired of that. I never. It never bothers me. I never go, oh, enough of that. Yeah. You know? Maybe it's because you're watching him do his stakeouts and doing his thing, and you're just into the movie, but it was good, you know... I mean, it's killer background music. Every good hero and villain of every movie should have one. Yeah, it's almost like score, and then it also kind of, you know he's in the scene, too, when, when it comes up where he's going to do yes. his thing. So the, the, the director was really smart in when they placed it in, too. Yeah, and I think another interesting thing about it is the fact that, you know, well, in my mind, in my opinion, everybody has their own. I have my own background music. I'm sure you do. Too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but, uh... It's just one of those interesting things about to me about the movie, and, and you can tell me um, whether I'm uh, wrong about it or not, but from what I understand, this script had been laying around for quite a few years before it was made, like from the late 70s, and there were people that were up for the role, they, they were like talking about like Sylvester Stallone, and like I was telling Kane, that would have made this movie completely different. Absolutely. They had, you know, I'm not saying it would have been bad, but it would have been, I think, a much darker film. I don't yeah. think it would have been as, you know, funny. Which is funny because the movie does have dark parts in it. I mean, after all, his best friend gets killed. That's what propels Axel to go to Beverly right. in the first place. But, yeah, I love this movie, man. So the Stallone thing is interesting. So, yeah, you're totally right. And basically the parts that Stallone changed and put into the film turned into Cobra. So that, that's oh, really? why, yeah. So they, well, that's see, I like yeah. Cobra, man. Oh, I do too, and we'll be talking about that one too. So I'll have you on for that well, one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love Cobra, man. So that's what basically what Beverly Hills Cop would have become. He basically took out all the comedy, and it became like a serious action film. Well, that's not what they wanted. They wanted like one of those action comedies that really hadn't been done yet. I mean, this this movie in many ways was kind of revolutionary in the sense that you had an action film with a lot of comedy in it and that really hadn't been done at that point another thing that's interesting is it says right here that bruckenheimer had claimed the role of axel foley was a was first offered after stallone didn't do it to mickey Rourke. yeah that's another one and then they had it they got him an offer sheet so they basically had him on retainer and For it like just took too long 
right? Yeah. So wow. they so it took him too it's long, and he went to another film. The film with Mickey Rourke, bro. Yeah. You know who Mickey Rourke is, Kane. Yeah. yeah, that would have been a completely different movie. Totally Probably different. All, all dark and serious and shit, you yeah. know. Which I like Mickey. I think Mickey's a, a great actor. I don't think that dude gets enough credit, personally. No, I agree. He's he's great. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't have been. It absolutely would not have been the same. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. And and again, I love your memories. And we're gonna have you on again soon. So thank you so much. Awesome, brother. Thanks for having us. All right. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender. You can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. The way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Podbean. Check it out. Science!